For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at community health care that's been in action in Pima County for 50 years. I'll talk with Ron Campbell, a retired animator who worked on more cartoons than I can tell you, from Scooby-Doo to the Smurfs to the Beatles. And listen to a spotlight session featuring the soulful, bluesy sound of Heather Hardy. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It was 1964 when the Johnson administration announced a war on poverty and made federal funds available to tackle the lack of health care in impoverished neighborhoods across the U.S. Community leaders on Tucson's west side, along with the newly formed U of A Medical School, used this opportunity to create the El Rio Community Health Center. In March of this year, El Rio opened its 11th clinic in Pima County. Nancy Montoya explains that while federal funds were crucial to the launch, it's been community support that has helped El Rio grow. Before 1970 here in Tucson, if you didn't have health insurance or couldn't afford to see a doctor, you had almost no options for health care. And preventative health care for the poor, well, that was nearly unheard of. Then came the Johnson administration's bold move. And this administration today here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. And with that declaration came federal funds for communities, among other things, to help launch small neighborhood health centers. In Tucson, that was El Rio. The health centers were to be in areas lacking affordable medical care. Yo antes trabajaba. Martha Franco and her husband, both now retired, know all about that. Viejo barrio, barrio, viejo. Martha says when she was young, she used to work but didn't have health insurance. She says before they found El Rio several decades ago, her husband almost lost a hand from an infected wound and was always sick. They had no money to see a doctor. Today, she says, that would never happen because for the past 30 years, El Rio has cared for all their medical needs. And they treat us, she says, with respect. Now, in the 1970s, even with federal funds, the health care facility struggled. Pima County donated the first clinic building, the old Mother Higgins Juvenile Detention Center, and $50,000 to help with the renovations. Those 18 jail cells were perfect for the first exam rooms. Nancy Johnson is the CEO today of El Rio Community Health. She says the clinics have grown from those early days in jail cells to some of the most modern health care facilities in the state. There are now 11 El Rio health centers in Pima County. It's really amazing today to see these integrated health centers where patients can come in and get everything from medical to dental care, get their lab drawn, their screening mammography done, fill their prescriptions, you know, take a health and fitness class, and have access to a whole electronic health record systems. 
In the 1980s and 90s, El Rio was often seen as the medical clinic for the communities very poor on Tucson's west and south sides. I come from a low-income family and El Rio has always been, you know, like the place for, for low-income families. They work with you whether you have health insurance or not. Mabel Taylor was just a baby when her parents first brought her to El Rio. And now I see you have children of your and own. Now I have my own children and we bring them here too. Today, El Rio still works with those who have a lack of ability to pay. But Taylor says El Rio has become the health care center of choice for many who could go anywhere else for medical care. If you had a choice to go anywhere else, would you still come to El Rio? I still would. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's, it's home. It's, it's, it's good. It feels good to come here. <laughs> CEO Nancy Johnson says El Rio has always had to battle the perception that it was the medical facility of last resort. I think that's always been an urban myth that El Rio just takes care of, of people who have nowhere else to go for health care. And the reality is we take care of most of our employees as patients. And uh, we also take care of a lot of Medicare patients. We take care of a lot of commercially insured patients, whether it's Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare. And then we also take care of a very large population of Medicaid. I've been coming to El Rio since I was a baby. That's Anita Hicks. She says her family started with El Rio because of need. Today, she says she's proud to say it's by choice. And you know, now my kids come here, so. And how old are your kids? I got a five six and a two month. So actually the doctor that they see used to be my doctor. Yes, my husband's doctor also. In the beginning, El Rio suffered from growing pains. Not enough doctors, not enough innovation, and a frustrated workforce. But CEO Johnson says when you see more than 100,000 patients a year, challenges will arise. She maintains too much is riding on El Rio for it not to succeed. It is, after all, the largest community health center in the state. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. That Ode to Barrio Viejo was performed by Lalo Guerrero, recorded back in 1999 by Nancy Montoya. While the Beatles themselves may not have been too crazy about the first cartoon series to feature their likenesses that ran on ABC TV starting in 1965, they are on the record as having loved Yellow Submarine, the feature film released in 1968. Ron Campbell is an artist who made major contributions to both of those, along with thousands of individual cartoons featuring Yogi Bear, Crazy Cat, Captain Caveman, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, the Smurfs, and DuckTales, just to name a few. Originally from Australia, Ron Campbell chose to retire in Arizona, and now he gives talks about his fascinating career and better still, draws and paints the characters that made Saturday mornings the place to be for generations of kids. Ron Campbell will be appearing in Tucson next week, and this gave me a chance to talk with a man whose work, it turns out, I've been enjoying my entire life. Well, uh, as a child, uh, all the neighborhood children would go to the movie theaters, the local movie theaters, uh, on a Saturday afternoon, 
and uh, uh, the programming for the movie theater would be turned over uh, for children's entertainment. So there would be a Hopalong Cassidy movie as the main feature, let us say, or a Roy Rogers or something. Before the main feature began, there would be a lot of shorts, uh, Rocket Man and Superman and Batman and stuff. Amongst them would be cartoons. And when I was a seven or eight-year-old, I'd be watching those cartoons, and I believed that they were real characters. I remember thinking, I've been to the zoo. I haven't seen a cat like that or a mouse like that. And I was mystified by it. <laughs> and, and I told my great-grandmother about it, and she said, Ronnie, they're just drawings. And that was like a memorable moment in my life. It went, whoom, like an epiphany, a childish epiphany. You mean I can do drawings that can come alive? And uh, just as I was competent as an artist, competent enough, television had come to Australia, and for the first time, it was possible to earn a living making television cut, uh, cartoon commercials. And I was able to strut around Sydney uh, bragging that I knew how to make cartoon advertisements and I began to earn a living doing precisely that as a self-taught uh, animator. Uh, and then American companies came around looking for production help and there I was, you know, so. Yeah, and that's how you ended up at Hanna-Barbera. Well, I was only at Hanna-Barbera for the first year I was in America and after that, I was, I was always my own studio. All through the 70s, I had my own TV show, The Big Blue Marble. Yeah, I remember that show fondly. I think oh, most, yeah. yeah, I think most yeah. American kids who grew up in the 70s remember that one. Yeah, we won a Peabody for that, an Emmy. So it was a very popular show. I'm very proud of that show. Let's do just a little bit of rapid fire where I will name a couple of, of uh, things from your resume and we'll just get a couple of sentences from you in reaction. Okay. Okay. Yogi Bear. He really became the grand old bear of animation, didn't he? Yes. Well, I, I worked on storyboards on that uh, show. I, I barely remembered it, as a matter of fact. It was so long ago. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people listening to this might barely remember Yogi Bear. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, so as a stylistic choice, which would you prefer to work on or to watch, the Flintstones or the Jetsons? Neither. <laughs> well, that's honest. Yeah, impossible to differentiate. Both of those shows, the main characters were designed by Iwo Takamoto, who was one of the finest artists or most skillful draftsmen I ever, ever knew. Um, he would go to um, pitching a new television show to the networks with Joe Barbera, I'm told, and uh, the clients would look at the characters and say, no, no, I, I think this should have a bigger nose or whatever. And uh, Iwo would rush into another room and do a drawing based on the suggestions of the customers and come out, and it was always perfect and beautiful. He was an extraordinary artist. Yes, very, very influential. Can you think of a character that you worked on for any period of time that you really wished you could have redesigned? Redesigned? Goodness, no, that's a strange question that would give me pause. Hmm. Uh, a character I didn't like the design of. Um, gosh, the, the character designs were always so carefully crafted. 
Mm-hmm. By and large, I'd have to say most of the characters that I worked with, well, all of them really, were perfect. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Did you ever know Alex Toth? Yes, I know him very well. Alex was a great... Uh, uh, he, he was very good at at at, at graphic compositions. Uh, he was terrific at uh, character design. He was a fabulous artist. I find that a lot of my favorite character designs, if I look into it, I, they began with Toth uh, designing them. Oh, really? I personally did not like working on... Um, superhero kind of shows. As a child, I loved them, adored them, but um, in my career, I really didn't like working on them very much. I preferred the softer, humorous, funny, smurf kindness kind of thing. Nice fellas, you know. (laughs) Well, then what kind of an opportunity was working on the Beatles cartoon for you? When I was in Australia, and Al Brodax asked me to direct the Beatles TV show. That was my first really uh, heavy responsibility. Uh, I was responsible for who to hire, how many people to hire, how many people to assign to every stage of production, responsible for the budgets, responsible for the storyboarding. And uh, New York sent me a script and a voice track and the music track of the Beatles music, and I sent them a finished film. It had to be delivered exactly on time. If it wasn't delivered exactly on time, uh, the network would have nothing to show that morning, that Saturday morning. So it was a cutthroat thing, you know. If you didn't deliver, you were dead, you know. Well, even today, it seems like the Beatles are one of your favorite subjects. Well, yes. Um, in my retirement, I decided to do paintings based on the television shows that I've been involved with. Uh, some of the biggest sellers of my paintings are based on the Beatles television cartoon show and the Yellow Submarine. That's true. Uh, the unexpected pleasures I get from talking to the people who come to the show, and, and when somebody buys a painting, I do a certificate of authenticity for them where I do an original drawing right there in front of them. And for some reason, people have an enormous uh, interest and pleasure in seeing a blank sheet of paper turn into a drawing of their favorite cartoon character, you know. It's a lot of fun. And when they do buy a painting one year, a couple of years later, they're asking me to, to buy another <laughs> one, you know. They're addictive, just like the cartoons themselves. Yeah, people just love cartoons, you know. And, and of course, one of the pleasures they get out of having it on their wall is every time they walk into the room, they tell me, they break out into a smile. Artist Ron Campbell will present a show of his paintings, do drawings for fans, and talk about his career on Tuesday and Wednesday, April 9th and 10th, at Arizona Picture and Frame Gallery located at 4523 East Speedway Boulevard. Heather Hardy has been making music on the violin for more than four decades and has played blues, folk, jazz, rock, and bluegrass on the recordings of more than 200 artists. The one thing I didn't mention is the soul in her music, because you'll be able to hear it for yourself. Heather Hardy is accompanied by Alvin Blaine on vocals and guitar next in this Spotlight Session. Thank you. 
When you first started playing violin, did you imagine that you were going to one day be playing this blend of rock, blues, folk? Not at all. What was your introduction to the instrument? 100% classical. My beginning was uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in, in public school. My first instrument was piano. So as soon as I started violin, I loved it. But I did, as a young girl, I listened to jazz and blues a lot. And I always wanted to play, but I, I was completely immersed in classical. the first record collection that you had access to? For most people, it's their parents. Some people, it's their grandparents, or maybe it's just a really cool friend. But do you remember the first treasure trove of, of real music that you had access to? My brother, my older brother. And what kind of stuff was he into? Jazz. Oh. He played trumpet, and he played in a big band, and so he was had lots and lots of great jazz. And then it was the 70s, so he was a few years in front of me with rock and roll, and a lot of Todd Rundgren, which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> Alvin, what about with you? Do you remember? Uh, mine was my parents. My yeah. dad had hundreds and hundreds of albums. And what kind of stuff did he have that you liked? <sighs> Everything. <laughs> he actually had a lot of uh, a lot of old country and a lot of old bluegrass because he played banjo, mandolin, fiddle. So he had a lot of that stuff. But also had all kinds of stuff, all kinds of Baja Marimba band to, you know, all sorts of things. And what kind of influence do you think that had on you? What what road did that lead you down? I started playing mandolin when I was four or five, and banjo when I was like eight or nine, so <laughs> I started playing the stuff that was on his records. Oh yes, I'm rolling and it's had the opportunity to work with many of the best artists in Tucson. And Alvin is one example. But when I first saw you play, it was with Sam Taylor. I had just arrived in Tucson, so Sam was my entrance to meeting all the best players. I had no idea the wealth of music here. There were so many great scenes. Like We played a different club every night. We would have our Monday night or our Tuesday night. And each club was its own scene of people. And uh, musicians came out and sat in, and you know it was it was a great time. But there's nobody like Sam. I mean, Sam could command a room, and just you could not sit down when Sam was playing. You could not. 
and he's the reason I try to sing. You know, he's the he was the reason that I started to write. It was very encouraging, and he had fun. You know, he really had a good time. Reaching out in darkness, trying to touch the light. Had to dry my tears by candlelight. Sam Taylor had written a song called Reaching Out in Darkness that he had me sing many years ago on a recording. But there was some lyrical content that did not fit for me. It sounded like something that a man would sing and not something that a woman would sing. And so after his passing, it's a very, very different song. But I've blended some pieces from that song that Sam wrote into Reaching Out in Darkness. So for me, it's, it's a little bit of an homage of, of co-writing a song with my hero. You can scream, you can wonder why. That's what's in the heart of a woman to love so deeply, oh, so completely. Mississippi. Alvin, have you played at the uh, folk festival before? I actually played it before I even moved here. I did some stuff there. And it's big. It's a big production. It's huge. For something like that, and especially for not charging people for it, I mean... There's other festivals I go to, and they, they'd be charging 100 bucks a day for everyone to get in, so for something like that. Heather, tell me about your connection to the Folk Festival. Do you remember the first time you played it or the first time you visited? Uh, I think it's been probably about seven, eight years. And ironically, I didn't think that I belonged at the Folk Fest for a long time because I was a blues player. I would go down there, but I just thought I didn't, you know, it was for folk singers and stuff. and. I think it was Sabra Falk, a friend of mine, that encouraged me to to go and sign up and do a set. I loved the energy of it. People are so kind. And uh, from that point on, I think when people found out I was into the Folk Fest, I started playing five and ten sets with different artists, you know. So I, you go down there, and for me, it's just fun weekend because I go play a half hour here with so-and-so and then learn a few songs and play with this guy and play with that guy, and it's just wonderful. It's a nice meeting place for all of us, you know. Didn't need to do no talking, come on, it's time for play. Mm, you can chase rattlesnakes in your head. Heather, I'd like you to tell me about one of the songs. Pick one out from the session you played and tell me where it came from, what it means to you. The one I would immediately talk about is the one called Sandy. And I wrote that being from New York for when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. It was a profound experience for a lot of people that I know that were living there and lost quite a lot. Today the time Raised up her pride And she spoke With heavy hands Violently With no sympathy 
she took back all her land in the cold both young and old bowed their heads to her power silently they wait to see if this was the final hour and the Statue of Liberty Standing solemnly Watches over the city of lights All she can do is stare As the water rushes everywhere And the lights disappear in the night seem like some of your violin lines in, in that tune, Sandy, were also kind of influenced by Eastern music, like maybe Jewish folk music? Well, it's a different scale. So you're playing a harmonic minor scale. I just fell in love with that particular melody, and it, it suited the subject, it suited the chords and the feel that I was going for. So, And then I think it, it does suit, you know, you're talking about the Statue of Liberty and an Eastern European kind of sound, just fits together. That was music by Heather Hardy, accompanied by Alvin Blaine, recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood in the AZPM Radio Studio. You can find the entire session on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Heather Hardy's Little Mama Band will be headlining the 34th Annual Tucson Folk Festival downtown on North Stone Avenue, Sunday, April 7th at 8 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.